0: At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Chelsea B. Coombs. And I'm Heather Radke. Heather, welcome to the show. Oh,
1: thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, listeners, Heather is the uh, author of a really awesome new book that I have very much enjoyed, called "But a Backstory." Uh, would you like to tell listeners a, <laughs> a little bit more about who you are and how you came to be writing the book that everyone listening to the show wishes they could have written? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if that's true, but um, yeah. So I yeah, I'm a writer and I'm a radio maker. Also, I work at Radiolab. Um, and I published this book in November of last year called Butts, a Backstory. And it's it's basically a cultural history of women's butts, although there's also quite a bit of science in it too, sort of history of science really more than straight up science, although there's some of that too. Um, and it's a look at, oh man, how do we summarize it? It's a look <laughs> at basically what butts mean and why they've come to mean that. Um, and as one one thing I've thought a lot about is like, why do they mean so much when they could have meant nothing like an elbow i mean an elbow doesn't mean nothing but it means much less than a than a butt i would say
0: yeah it's more <laughs> more function over form yes. you know awesome well we will be talking more about butts in a minute i'm sure but let's get into the show so on the weirdest thing i learned this week we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading writing, reporting, etc., and then decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest
2: thing we learned this week actually was.
0: Chelsea, what's your tease?
2: Well, this week, mine is that parrots seem to really enjoy video chatting with other parrots. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, like, everybody loves FaceTiming, right? You know, so... I'm glad that Parrot can finally get in on the action, that we all can.
0: Am, I'm intrigued. Can't wait to hear more. Wonderful. Um, my tea is, is actually accidentally also bird-related. Um, I want to talk about the surprisingly thrilling history of chickens as food, which started more recently than you might expect. This one was a real roller coaster for me, not going to lie.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm excited about that. I love I love a surprising history. <laughs>
0: Heather what's your tease well
1: mine is not one that I learned this week but instead one I learned a long time ago but it's um it's about two statues that uh were were very important to you eugen- the eugenics movement in America and also are kind of foundational and women's sizing of their clothes
0: oh, which is interesting a, a mysterious and arcane art it for is, sure it is indeed <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I love going clothing shopping. Just makes me feel great. Oh yeah, (laughs) you're the only one. (laughs) That was a huge (laughs) heap (laughs) of
0: sarcasm. Well, let's see. What should we begin with? I'm happy that I can I can get rolling on chickens. Um,
2: Yeah, go for it.
0: Yeah. So this fact started um, with an article called. How a shipping error 100 years ago launched the $30 billion chicken industry by Kenny Torella at Vox, uh, which is as wild and interesting as it sounds and which I promise I will get back to in a few minutes. But in an effort to not just like crib this one fantastic piece of reporting, I decided, you know, I'll go, I'll pull in some other random chicken facts from, from farther back in chicken history. And then like, let me just say, I have been thoroughly like poultry pilled. Like, I, my mind is blown. <laughs> this thing goes deep. I had no idea. Um, so, yeah. It turns out that the origin of domesticated chickens is hotly contested, which I do not know. Um,
2: Interesting.
0: Until recently, it was, like, fairly widely accepted that people were breeding jungle fowl in Southeast Asia, which is uh, from whence chickens, as we know them today, came uh, as far back as 10,000 years ago. There wasn't any evidence of butchering that long ago, so some people suggested that the birds were bred for cockfighting way before they were bred for eating. Oh. Um or what about some, eggs. Yeah, eggs well, too? also eggs. Like okay. There's the history of eggs interweaves here and it, it gets complicated. <laughs> okay. but it Sorry, like... not, to, not to throw you off. Keep going, <laughs> no, no, keep no, going. Cockfighting no. versus
1: like, meat, chicken like meat.
0: People have probably literally always eaten eggs, but then it's like that can be kind of like a foraging situation, right? Oh, so sure, sure. Okay, Then the it. question is like, when did they start keeping birds specifically for eggs and or meat? Um, and definitely... The eggs came before the chicken in terms of what people (laughs) ate them for. Um, But the oldest signs of chicken bones that people had slaughtered and like snacked on came from the ancient city of Maresha, which is in the Judean lowlands. And um, it sat at the crossroads of trade routes for Egypt and Jerusalem during the Iron Age. And the city peaked between like 400 and 200 B.C., And so in addition to signs of, you know, butchering marks on the bones, uh, you know, teeth and things like that, um, we also see twice as many females as males in the like chicken bone remains, which uh, because of that idea that previously they had mostly been bred for cockfighting, that's like, ah, clearly something else was going on. There were hens. But in 2022, an international group of researchers called Fowl, I'm so sorry. (laughs) They used uh, radiocarbon dating to confirm the ages of 23 of the proposed earliest chickens found in Western Eurasia and Northwest Africa. They studied remains found in more than 600 sites in 89 countries in total. Uh, So looking at the radiocarbon dating, like DNA evidence, archaeological evidence, etc. And um, while that study on Russia that I mentioned used radiocarbon dating and is probably accurate A lot of the evidence of the oldest kept chickens came from older studies and some of them dated the chicken bones based on the soil layers that they were in you know archaeologists will be like ah we see this artifact that was definitely from this time period and here's all the stuff that was sitting next to it in that layer of soil the issue is that chicken bones are super light and so it's very easy for any disruption in the soil to press them down deeper So um, that was kind of what got them suspicious. And once they did the radiocarbon dating, they were like, indeed, many of these bones are not actually as old as archaeologists assumed that they were. Um, And, yeah, the researchers also showed that those 10,000-year-old bones that supposedly showed people had been raising uh, roosters for cockfighting were actually from pheasants. So, womp, womp. Um, (laughs) But... (laughs) According to the new analysis, the oldest bones of a definite domesticated chicken were found in central Thailand uh, and they dated to between 1650 B.C. and 1250 B.C. So like pretty recent, all things considered. Yeah. And what's really cool is that based on that timing, um, which coincides with the rise of rice and millet cultivation in dry fields in that region, basically um, planting them in fields that would flood during particular seasons as opposed to like flooded rice paddies uh, the researchers think that domestication could have started when a few of these jungle fowl were like tented down from the trees because there was suddenly all of this grain around and up for grabs <laughs> um, and they would like head more into human settlements and sort of the way that like docile wolves started hanging around human campfires Um, that was just like the beginning of this interaction that paved the way for like humans being interested in these birds. But there is something intriguing here because we know based on the archaeological evidence that people didn't start keeping chickens for meat for hundreds of years from that point. And according Mm -hmm. to the Hmm. new study, um, as domesticated fowl spread across Asia and then throughout the Mediterranean along routes used by early Greek, Etruscan, and Phoenician traders, there was a clear pattern of the birds arriving several centuries before people started eating them. So.
1: Weird. (laughs) Huh. So what do they think they were doing with them?
0: So what's interesting is that in early Southeast Asian sites, you'll see partial or even whole skeletons of adult chickens that are placed in human graves and show no sign of butchering. Pets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in Europe, similarly, several of the earliest chickens um, around 50 B.C. to 100 A.D. were buried in human graves. And um, one grave chicken in Europe actually showed evidence of a healed leg fracture. Um, so like Whoa. somebody somebody made a little splint for that chicken. Oh,
2: so, that's so sweet.
0: <laughs> um, also, men were often buried with roosters and women with hens, which... We don't know that that means anything, but it kind of adds to the sense that there was some, some meaningful something. Um, anyway, I, don't, I also don't really know how, how precise you can get on uh, sexing a several thousand-year-old chicken skeleton. So yeah, Isn't it hard, <laughs>
1: pretty hard to sex a chicken I, in, I would in general? Say
0: probably, yeah. So um, I'll just leave that as an aside that the researchers, you know, added. But I, I don't know that we really, uh, I don't know how true that is. <laughs> But yeah, so it does seem like um, they were kept as pets and um, researchers argue that, you know, these like barely domesticated jungle fowl or perhaps even just like truly wild jungle fowl because they were pretty chill birds to start out with. um, They would have been like some of the most colorful and friendly birds that people had ever encountered, especially as they moved out of Southeast Asia on trade routes like Imagine being in like iron age britain and this like fluorescent jungle bird shows up. It's like having <laughs> a pet parrot. That's what they compared it to. They were like people mm. people would have been enamored with these birds. They were beautiful. Um and listeners if if any of you are like picturing a barnyard chicken and don't know what I'm saying, like look up, you know, Asian jungle fowl. They're very colorful. Um, Is it like a
1: peacock or what's the, what's, I'm going to look it up. They've
0: got like very shiny feathers. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Sort of like, like the, uh, (laughs) the uh, chicken that is voiced by Alan Tiddick in Moana is, (laughs) is like what these chickens would look like.
1: Yeah. Very fancy chicken.
0: Yeah. So. Even if cultures didn't like actively revere them, which, of course, because of how archaeology is, there are definitely some researchers who are like, oh, they buried them with them. So they were they were spiritually significant. And it's like, well, maybe they were just like pets. We don't really know. But clearly they mattered and they were not eating them. They were like exotic and cute and cool to keep around. Of course, that changed eventually. Um, We know that as time went on, like all of these places I have mentioned that loved their chickens, went on to eat chicken. Um, This probably happened pretty gradually, probably pretty site-specific. People needed food, and these chickens were there, but we do know that during the rise of the Roman Empire, eggs became an extremely popular snack. Um, Like, we find shells that were, like, cast away by gladiator spectators. They were just you munched on eggs all the time. A very portable, hearty, like a
1: hard-boiled
0: egg yeah the idea i think it was like there were various ways of preserving them is is what i've seen referenced so Mm. i'm guessing like some boiled some salted um and yeah it seems like the widespread adoption of chicken meat as a human food probably followed pretty naturally from the spread of like chicken eggs being a hot commodity um like in England, for example, chickens were not eaten regularly until around 1700 years ago. And that started in like urban and military sites that were influenced by Roman occupation. Um, so this is not to say that the Romans were the first people to eat chicken. They definitely were not. But it seems like the, the spread of like this idea that chickens were uh, for food was probably sped up by the Roman Empire. Um, one of the re- researchers on this study... Kept being quoted saying things like familiarity breeds contempt to to explain (laughs) why. wow. Yeah, apparently, like, according to their research, which, of course, like, you know, is still pretty preliminary, but is kind of the best, um, the most detailed narrative to date on, like, how chickens spread as a food. know, they were like, it took about 700 to 800 years once chickens arrived in a place for people to decide to eat them. Um, And so, yeah, they basically are saying um, they were really exciting and then people got used to them and then people got hungry and then people ate them. Um, So, who
2: among us?
1: (laughs) That seems like kind of a little bit of a... I don't know. Doesn't that feel like quite a lot of assumptions <laughs> yes. are being oh, made? Oh,
0: absolutely. There are many, many assumptions in this study. I am, you know, to me, it's like it's so fascinating just that we like have this confusing origin story and that like there was a time that chickens were were not really primarily a food, but that people seemed to want them around anyway. All of the details are, of course, quite speculative um but yeah i'm i am excited to see more researchers kind of dig into this question um and yeah like fast forward to today where people around the world eat more than 70 billion chickens a year so like how did we get here um in america there's a particularly whimsical bit of lore again not really sure how true (laughs) it is that claims that the answer is a shipping error so, yeah, as Kenny Torella reported for Vox, um, one Cecile Steele of Ocean View, Delaware, uh, kept a small flock of chickens back in 1923, as many rural Americans did. Um, and Americans generally kept chickens for their eggs, they, they would slaughter and eat a chicken once they stopped being good at laying eggs. And chickens were really expensive to keep alive in high numbers. So their meat was considered a luxury or at least having like a a spring chicken, you know, not like an old bad at laying eggs chicken. Um, So as the legend goes, the local chick hatchery accidentally delivered 10 times the number of birds that Steele had ordered. She had asked for 50. They sent 500 and um, with no way to return them, she just did her best to raise them in her 256 square foot barn, which was oh a real God. foreshadowing of the poultry industry as it stands yeah, it today. Sure was.
2: <laughs> Sounds like my apartment. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, more than a hundred of the chicks died, unsurprisingly, uh, but the ones that lived uh, did like yield her a good return, something like eleven dollars per pound, adjusted for inflation. Um, They did, of course, only grow to be about two pounds a piece because this is before we had plumped up birds for their meat, um, which I'll get into a little bit more in a second. Um, But yeah, there's a a bunch more info about like how all of this happened at exactly the right time for chicken coops to take off because uh, we discovered vitamin D. There was the advent of refrigeration, Um, but you can read more about that in... Torella's vox.com article which I will link to on popside.com slash weird but yeah the story goes that like this woman really made it work she just <laughs> life gave her chicks and she made um industrial farming um and oh the world followed suit um but yeah mass production of chicken took a dark turn in 1948 when the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, or ANP, which was, you know, the kind of major supermarket of the day, held a Chicken of Tomorrow contest, because um, they wanted to find a breed that had, like, a plumber body, faster growing time, and more white meat, that's what the people craved. Um, and 40 finalists submitted 720 eggs to a central hatching facility, and they were fed, raised, monitored in closely controlled conditions for 12 weeks. Um, then the survivors were slaughtered and judged. And there's some documentary footage, which I'll link to on popsign.com weird. It's pretty delightful. Everything you would expect from a 1948 chicken contest. Um, it features the crowning of the Delmarva Chicken of Tomorrow Queen, a girl named Nancy McGee, which is the perfect name for the chicken queen. Um, also, the parade looks exactly like the um, parade at the end of one of my favorite movies, Drop Dead Gorgeous, for what it's worth. So any fellow Drop Dead Gorgeous fans get excited. Um, and yeah, Red Cornish Crosses from the Vantress Hatchery absolutely crushed the competition in terms of feed efficiency and weight. Meanwhile, a family farm called Arbor Acres, which won the competition's purebred category, would go on to crossbreed their, like, very docile chickens with the red cornish to get them bigger. And they even got them to have fewer feathers, so that made them really popular because it was less work to pluck them. And then Nelson Rockefeller bought the farm in the 60s. And that's why, at this point, most chickens being raised at industrial scale have a genetic link to that chicken of tomorrow contest. And to put things in perspective, um, there was a Canadian study a few years back where researchers took breeds from... 1957, 1978, and 2005, and fed each bird the same diet for a couple of months. Um, and I guess when we, when we say breeds from, like breeds originating um, in those years. And the 1957 breed, which would have been, you know, something pretty similar to the one that won that 1948 contest, um, hit the two-pound mark after that two months of controlled diet, The 1978 breed reached double that weight in the same amount of time. And the 2005 breed was a whopping 9.2 pounds. (laughs) Oh, my God. So we have just, we have some real bloated chickens today. Um, And, yeah, that brings me to kind of the the cap of this fact, which is that modern chicken farming is, to put it lightly, uh, a horror show. (laughs) Chickens grow really big they grow really fast Um, some breeds basically can't stand up because of that they're also more prone to heart failure because their cardiovascular systems can't keep up with their growing muscle and then there's the rampant spread of antibiotic resistance among eggs and chicken meat because we really have to use preventative antibiotics to keep birds from dying off on the farm because they are crammed inside covered in poop it's pretty bad meanwhile humans are eating like more and more chicken every year because of the health and environmental concerns around red meat. So as oh. people cut out other meat, they tend to add in chicken, which, again, like I understand why why that was the messaging for a while, but like maybe keep in mind, don't, don't eat too many more chickens. Um, one thing I think a lot of people don't realize is like how misleading a lot of chicken and egg labels are. Um, So for folks who like really do mean to buy kind of more sustainably ethically raised eggs and meat, here's a little primer. Um, And I will just say I do eat chickens and eggs. So like I'm not I'm not trying to shame you into never eating chickens or eggs again. I just think (laughs) this is important. So um, labels like free range, no antibiotics and natural are absolutely meaningless. There's no oversight. There's no accountability. There's no standards. Um, Anybody can just put that on their eggs and meat. Um, oh, I mean, man. no antibiotics, sorry, does mean that they aren't given antibiotics, but it says nothing about anything else. I think uh, a lot of people assume that that must indicate a whole bunch of positive things. Um, I think it's also like it, no antibiotics only means they were never fed antibiotics. And like, there's kind of a whole lot of, you know, loopholes you can get into about mm, what what that means. Um, Cage-free and free-range birds can still be crammed into overcrowded indoor areas, too. There are basically three certifications that actually mean something, and those are animal welfare-approved, certified humane, and global animal partnership. Um, an important caveat for certified humane is that you want it to also reference free-range or pasture-raised chickens, which indicates a certain amount of outdoor access. The other two labels I mentioned um, Animal Welfare Approved and Global Animal Partnership come built in with like the chickens get to see daylight. Um, Yeah, without one of those three certifications, you're pretty much guaranteeing that your meat and eggs come from this like hellish lightless box full of crippled chickens rolling around in their own poop. And like, listen, again, I eat meat, but like, yikes, you know, and these are birds that our ancestors literally treasured. So... The next time you're thinking about like picking up a budget pack of chicken wings, think of that ancient human who made a little splint for their precious pet chicken and just be like, maybe we can do a little better. Also, like, listen, if nothing else, I'm here to tell you, happy chickens taste better. I have a super hipster local butcher, Dark Pines in Jersey City, please give me a free chicken. And... It's life changing, when you taste a chicken that wasn't bred to be a nine pound ball of water and live in misery. So this is my, you know, my red blooded American meat eating endorsement for <laughs> more, more ethical chicken farming. Um. Anyway, yeah, that's my, that's my saga. It really, uh, I was shocked to learn that chickens were once treasured pets. And it's particularly mind blowing because I grew up in a rural area with a lot of chickens. And we've re- listen, we've we've done chickens dirty. They're pretty stupid at this point. And the idea that they might <laughs> were once these exotic, exciting birds, um, kind of bums me out. But uh, you know, that's that's life. That's agriculture, man. Oh, so man. Well <laughs> at least in
1: the twentieth century it's agriculture. Yeah, wow. That's true.
0: Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Okay, we're back and, um, Chelsea, let's, let's roll right into some more bird stuff. Tell me about these parrots.
2: Honestly, I can't believe how well your fact goes into mine. Like, wow, parrots as pets. You know, maybe in like a hundred years, we'll be having horrible conditions oh, no. for parrots oh, no. that we're about to eat. Maybe we'll learn. Anyway, our never lesson. mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully we do. So, uh, on a brighter note, pet loneliness is a huge problem because obviously humans, we, we just can't be there for our animals twenty four seven. Like, there's over. million parrots kept as pets in the United States, but they often just don't get enough enrichment like they would if they were in the wild with another flock. Um, And that can lead to negative behaviors like pacing, excessive sleeping and vocalizations, feather picking and even self-mutilation. So our most recent Plus Pet Psychic column by Brandon Keim even focused on this subject, looking at whether captive parrots can get PTSD. And Just as a forewarning, you're going to want to grab tissues before reading that one. Um, I'm sure we will have that linked below. But um, obviously adding environmental enrichment can help with these kinds of behaviors. And while just adding another bird to be a friend to your current parrot sounds really good, there are actually a lot of other issues like diseases and even aggression and injuries that can kind of keep that from being the best solution for your pet parrot. So scientists at Northeastern University, the MIT Media Lab and the University of Glasgow decided to create and test a parrot to parrot video calling system to find out if that would help. And I have to tell you, this study is probably one of like the most ethically minded studies about animals I've ever read. Like every single sentence is like we just wanted to make sure that the parrots were okay. Like, it was really kind of touching, honestly. Like, when you read enough studies about, like, animals and stuff, usually it's just not the most ethically grounded. But, like, this one really was. So, um, in phase one of the study, basically, the parrots learned that when they touched a bell three times, then touched a picture of another parrot three times, they would then be connected to that parrot through a video call that their caregiver would facilitate through Facebook Messenger. So it's like... I know, right? Also, why Facebook Messenger? That's like a weird choice to me, but like, that's fine. Sponsored by, right? (laughs) Sponsored by Facebook Messenger. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg, for connecting the world's parents. Uh, So they also got a treat each time they touched the bell and the picture. And that's important later on. I'll I'll tell you why. Um, So that first phase was kind of a meet and greet phase. And each parrot was able to chat with the other parrots in their groups two times so you know each group had like four parrots or something like that and they'd all kind of like meet each other and kind of learn how you know how each each other were and all that kind of good stuff which is kind of adorable um so in the next phase after that meet and greet each group of parents and caretakers would choose a specific three-hour-long window in which all the other birds and their owners were available to make and receive calls at the same time, just to make sure that, you know, if a parent was trying to call their bud, you know, they wouldn't end up with, like, a call waiting signal or, like, anything like that, because that would be truly tragic. Um, So during that time, they would bring the bell and the phone or tablet out, the caregiver would. And then the parrots could choose which of the other birds they wanted to call. There was like a piece of paper that had like all the different parrots pictures on them. And they would peck to signify which parrot they wanted to Was there one to. that was like
1: really popular and then I one was that was like say, yeah. left like nobody wanted to <laughs> talk
2: to? So luckily that didn't happen. But like. They legitimately and I'll get into this a little bit more, but they had preferences (laughs) for like who they liked to talk to. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, they would then have they could make up to two five minute calls per session. And it was only it was like limited to five minutes because, you know, they wanted to make sure that the parents didn't get like over fatigued or like, you know, one parent was talking about like his grandma and the other one was like, oh, God, I'm so sick of hearing about this. (laughs) But uh, no, that's not science. That was just made up right then. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks for that disclaimer, Tulsi. You're welcome. I mean, you never know. I know Maybe it's pretty, somebody listening was pretty human <laughs> sounding. Yeah. It really well, it really is. It's animal behavior. You gotta yeah. love it. Um, so the really interesting thing is that it ended up being really successful. A hundred percent of the caregiver participants said they believed their birds had at least a moderately positive experience. And they actually had these specific things to say about their birds' experiences. One said, she came alive during the calls. The other one said, he still got treats for several of the apps, but not for Messenger. Yet he would choose Messenger above the others every time when it was available. And then another person said, he would clearly ring the bell and very decisively select a friend. So, like... (laughs) These parrots, like, very much enjoyed this experience, or at least it seems like they did based upon their experiences. And again, they weren't getting treats anymore. Like, they got treats during the first, like, meet-and-greet period, but they didn't get any extra, like, food treats or anything during the second phase. They were just kind of, like, motivated by wanting to chat with their parents. second
0: bird is just, like, the... life is wonderful mirror universe version of the, like, wire ape mother study. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, it's the same thing, but not cruel huh? and terrible. Just, they could yeah. have just, just given them treats at a phone call.
2: <laughs> but instead they decided to make the most cruel. Yeah. But I love, experiment I love that ever. there
0: are, there are way nicer more ethical ways to prove that animals want to hang out with other animals and have comfort and connection. It's really nice. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it was great, too, because like in that like kind of meet and greet period, there were originally I think like 18 total birds, but three of them like for whatever reason during some of the encounters, they would have like some negative behaviors like flying away from where the video camera was and stuff. And they were like not included because they were like, oh, clearly these birds don't want to do this. So They were like really thinking of the birds in this experiment, which I thought everybody'd have a good time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And something else that was super cool is that the birds even exhibited new wild bird behaviors that they'd never done before, just because they had seen these other parrots exhibiting those behaviors. It's
0: like teens picking up trends on TikTok.
2: (laughs) Exactly. This is TikTok for parrots. Like, you know, they're slugging, um, (laughs) doing all kinds of wild things. But one one of the caregivers said after the calls, she started flying more. I think she realized that flying is an okay behavior, which is like, isn't that the most heartbreaking thing you've ever heard? (laughs) Like this parrot in captivity finally learns to fly because it saw its friend on FaceTime doing it like. It's amazing. And then another added, he learned foraging behaviors that I have tried and tried for a year to teach him. This is the first time he would forage. Like, it's kind of amazing how literally just giving access to these parrots, like this video message access, really kind of opens up their worlds and you know you can make like a whole parallel about like the internet giving us all access to other worlds um but you know it's it's kind of interesting that you see this socialization among these parrots in a similar way that you see the socialization of humans yeah it actually Um, reminds
1: me i have a small baby who's nine months old and she was sort of like trying to crawl and then we had another baby over who was like basically the same age and he was crawling uh and then she started to crawl Uh and it was interesting because i was like why did she need another baby I mean, I guess like we don't crawl around. Maybe that's it's as simple as that. So like it's but maybe you just need some of your own kind to kind of. Yes. Like understand, what you know, like a a human can't teach a parrot to forage. Only another parrot can teach you that, you know.
2: Right. Exactly. And like it's so interesting because we do take these animals like out of their wild, you know, cells and their natural environments and their flocks and, you know, We enjoy having parrots or other kinds of pets and stuff, but, like, we don't really think a whole lot about, like, well, is this what we should be doing? Like, how can we make their experience more optimal, et cetera, et cetera. But in in conclusion, um, while all of these calls were kind of facilitated by caregivers, because, again, they wanted to make sure that the birds didn't, like, break the tablets or phones or, like, get hurt from breaking them or anything like that this study could actually help inform new technology that could let parrots video call their friends whenever they wanted. And I think that's just great. Like, I don't know, like, it's such a fun study. And usually studies are not exciting. And like, or they have like some horrible conclusion, like the earth is melting. But like, this one's just good old fashioned parrot fun. And I just really appreciate it.
1: I mean, that yeah, that's awesome. I the one thing is also because I have a baby, I'm like, is there such a thing as too much face? Like, what about screen time <laughs>
0: for the parrot? Right. Sure. That's like f- screen 50, time 50 for years from so now, we'll be talking about <laughs> the scourge of parrot screen time. <laughs> it's, um, there really Humans will be will a be parrot gone. TikTok by then. And um, yeah. that won't be so good. But there's definitely... Maybe we can we can do better for the parrots than we did for ourselves maybe we can stick to an optimal amount of social
2: networking <laughs> exactly exactly maybe the caregivers need to be there just to monitor whatever they're doing because you know you don't want any weird parrot sexting going on at maybe all. we should you just know, let the
1: f- parrots hang out together as long yeah, as there's that's like a true. moment where they could
2: well well that's the problem though because there's like this particular disease that's like super common among parrots that's like very transmissible so it's oh like God. hard to be like oh let's get the parrots together and like have like like a like a meetup between the parrots or whatever like you a know play date I mean? or something so <laughs> yeah. yeah a play date exactly exactly so you know it's i think it's just better honestly you know you have kind of like a wall there with the the screen t- but it's safe for all involved and everyone was happy wow nice. well, that's, so. not
1: a, that's not the study here every day is everybody's happy at the end and better connected <laughs> <Right>? and
0: <laughs> i'm and i'm relieved to hear that you know while they had preferences none of the parrots were like and nobody called this parrot can you imagine if the researchers who lovingly crafted this study then we're like, oh, no, what do we do about this parrot that
2: is all alone because no one wanted to call him? This parrot is posting song lyrics. Oh. Like, we have to stop.
1: Maybe the ones who were to, would have been all alone are the ones who were like, I'm flying away from this.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> I, probably. I know, true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that makes a lot Anti-social of sense. But banging. it's great because... It's great for like, you know, parrots, not only just like pet parrots, but also parrots like in zoos or other kinds of birds that are like social animals or just social animals in general. Like this could be applied to so many different species. So it'll be interesting to see where this kind of study goes in the future. Definitely.
0: Cool. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. and uh, heather, let's let's talk about um presumably butts in some fashion, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so my fact is it's about butts. all every <laughs> everything I do these days is about butts. but i I got interested in this because I, you know, I was researching this history of women's butts, and I had looked at all these different, components moments in especially the last 200 years and i knew that eugenicists must have something to say about butts because they were so obsessed about bodies and i talked to a really interesting researcher at the university of michigan who's done like very important historical research about um like uncovering files of sterilization in the state of michigan um And I I just asked her, like, she probably was like, you totally unserious person. But she was, I was like, what did eugenicists have to say about butts? And she pointed me to these two statues um, that now are housed at the Science Museum at Harvard. Um, But as you'll hear, we're in Cleveland for a long time. Um, They were called Norma and Norman, which is like such a eugenicist, like, thing to call something Mm -hmm. and there are these statues that uh were made they were kind of displayed first in 1945 um and they were kind of meant to be like the ideal eugenics people uh you know Mm. codified in stone so that people could come and look at them and be like this is what the it's kind of a complicated needle they're threading here, but like the best, but also most normal and most average American mm-hmm. body would look like. Um, and so basically this was like a way to know what, what eugenicists thought was the correct women's butt. And the answer to that question is basically like a small ish kind of pert, like non like n- kind of boring, but, They're, which is kind of, it's like very hard to describe because it's sort of like, it's like not too thin, not too fat, not too curvy. They were very suspicious of like voluptuousness. And there's a lot of like anxiety in the literature around these statues that's like about the, like comparing them to the Venus statues of the the ancient times and how these are really different than that. They're not like that. They're like very intense about the way that they're not voluptuous in that way because it's like too sexy. Oh my gosh. Um, and this, so the statutes were first displayed at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York, which was a big eugenicist place. Although to be fair to that place, actually most of most American universities and scientific institutions were very deeply embedded right. in the eugenics project. Like you can barely find anyone from the first half of the 20th century that was well known who was against eugenics. Um and the, the curator of anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History wrote a big article about these statues. They were, and it, there was a big display and lots and lots of people came and saw them. The statues were made by two people. They were, it's kind of a weird combination of people. It's a gynecologist and a sculptor. Oh, <laughs> okay uh so it's like classic combo you know (laughs) like whatever there um they had previously worked on this other thing called the birthing series where they showed like how a fetus develops in utero and kind of how it works in the uterus and you know that project actually was sort of useful because it was the kind of thing not many people knew at that at the time you know that's like Right. Um, so when they were displaying those statues, I mean, I think in all, of, they thought they were doing a good thing through and through, but they, that was their first collaboration and that's part of why they were doing it was to sort of do a, an educational thing. And then they decided to go in on the second project to create these statues to sh- to show what they perceived to be the average American man and woman. So um, the data for these statues came from two from a kind of complicated set of places for norm man and his it's spelled n-o-r-m-m-a-n so it's like Norm the, the man? norm man <laughs> and then wow norma is a little more um I don't know. It's like a little more elegant, I guess, because it's like <laughs> an actual name. Fair. But N- Norman's <laughs> measurements came from basically army measurements. Every time anybody had ever gone into the army, they are measured. And so there was this kind of trove of data that these two two guys were using to create Norman. Um, but when they were trying to create Norma, they kind of ran into a problem, which is that there's not any equivalent amount of data for the American women at that time. So they went hunting and hunting and then they found this study that had been done in the thirties by the WPA, by this woman named Ruth O'Brien at the WPA who was trying to solve a problem that so many of us still have today, which is that she was like women's sizing doesn't work. And the history of women's sizing, I like won't even go into it, but basically it's like like very, nobody's ever been able to make it work. Like women are basically Mm -hmm. the bodies of female sexed people are just, it's too, too bulbous and there's fat in different places. And it's, it's basically very, very hard to standardize, which I, I sort of like that just for what it's worth. I feel like it, although it causes us all quite a lot of problems, there's also something about the ways that bodies resist standardization in the story that I think is sort of beautiful and, um, maybe it like offers some some mode of thinking about resistance that's kind of just like in our actual embodied selves Um, but Ruth O'Brien it was like the 30s people are obsessed about data and she's like this is the problem here is that we don't have enough data points so we're going to go and measure thousands of women we're going hi- to use WPA money pe- send people out all over the country and measure thousands of women and she did she's, they, she measured 15,000 women across the country in different wow. cities with these like (laughs) these measuring squads, they would like go and they had like little special underwear people put on and then they would stand up on these little like platforms and then they took many, many measurements like the ankle girth and the calf to thigh, you know, whatever, just like any, any part of the body was, was measured. But Ruth O'Brien did something that, uh, I mean, it's very of the time, I guess. Although I, I still find it really weird that she did this, um, even within its historical context, which is that she she threw out all the data of non-white people. So they some of those 15,000 people they measured were non-white. And one thing that's a little unclear from the historical record is if she just meant like what we would think of as women of color, or if she also included in the non-white people like Italians and Jewish women and people who at that time probably wouldn't have been considered right in the sense that we think of it now um so she threw out all of that data and then she created a sizing scheme from what was left and it was a pretty complicated sizing schema that was like it was like something like 30 i always forget the number but it's like either 35 or 37 sizes but it didn't even work anyway because Partially because she threw out all that data, but also because that's too many sizes for manufacturers. It's just too expensive. Okay, so that all happened. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, these the gynecologist and the statue guy are making these. They use her data to make these statues to show, and for them, they're like, it's awesome. This lady threw out all the all the non-white women because that's what we want. That's how we perceived to be what we perceive to be like the most normal, the most eugenical, as they right. would say, American body. So then they create this statue that's the average of all of this data that, she, that that Ruth O'Brien collected, put it in the Museum of Natural History, blah, blah, everyone's super excited, et cetera. Et cetera. Then this guy from Cleveland is like, Rad, I'm starting this thing called a hygiene museum. He had worked in germany during the war
2: oh (laughs) yeah he was interesting
1: nazi adjacent and when i was fact checking this thing it's probably not quite right to call him a full nazi because he was kicked out of the nazi party but he was definitely like vibing hard with the nazis (laughs) in the i I ran
0: into that a couple of times (laughs) in in fact checking my book too where i was like this person was a eugenicist and a nazi and my fact checker was like well and i was like Okay. okay. I know. I mean, it's <laughs> it's important. I think yeah, that yeah, the yeah. only
1: reason it's important to do that is because there's a way, like, actually just so many people believe this stuff yes. and you don't, you want mm. to actually just, I think it's important for people to understand how pervasive these ideas were and that totally. they weren't, they actually weren't all Nazis. Like, some of them were, you know, many of them were pres- You know, presidents of the United States. Most of like, what is it? The first seven presidents of the United States believed in eugenics. So, um, this guy actually got kicked out of Nazi Germany for not being Nazi enough, basically. He starts this health and hygiene museum in Cleveland, and he buys these statues. And he's pretty psyched about them. And he's like, we're going to bring the statues to Cleveland. We're going to show them off. And he did. And what, the first thing he wanted to do to celebrate this purchase of these statues was he had this contest to find Norma. Because it's like... <laughs> oh, no. It's, And this is actually an interesting thing that kind of chimes with your chicken story a little bit (laughs) (laughs) because he's like, we want to find the, you know, to some extent eugenicists aren't, they're not interested in an ideal that's outside of reality. They want people to believe that they can do this through essentially breeding, you know, and this like very rudimentary idea of genetics that they had. Um, so he's like, we're going to like measure all the women in Cleveland and find the most Norma lady in all of Cleveland, like the most normal and the most eugenic. And, and so I think it's like 10,000 women measure themselves for this contest. And you know, it's like, it's like in the newspaper every day. Interestingly, the other things in the newspaper right around this time are the bombings of hiroshima and nagasaki so it's like the end of world war ii which is i think interesting both because like like you can imagine the kind of like hiroshima bombed like also like come to the ymca and get measured for this like these things are running side by side but also it's like a moment in american history where there's a lot of interest in normalness and normalcy um I mean, and maybe for understandable reasons, like things are pretty bananas. It's like the depression is in the recent past. The these, you know, everybody's been away at war. So part of probably with the popularity of a contest like this is that there's this kind of desire for, you know, wanting to fit in and wanting things to kind of return to something stable. Okay. So then they measure all these women. And I guess I, I was surprised by this, but they didn't find anybody who was normal who was really? the right measurement
0: that's also surprising to me you would think someone yeah like by accident <laughs> I know I know right. exactly but they
1: found this one woman her name's Martha Skidmore who was like the closest and she was like she had worked at, she was like a Rosie the Riveter had worked it worked as a gauge grinder at a factory then she like had you know given up her job for the boys coming home and then now she was taking tickets in the movie theater she had just been married it was like a very it's like she's like a sort of quintessential like (laughs) mid-century Midwest, like middle-class woman i tried so hard to find her she or her family she had died but i couldn't i never could track anybody down but i mean the story i always feel like is such a it's a story about eugenics about how like in embedded the eugenics idea is in even things as kind of you know mundane as and also kind of horrifying as women's sizing but also how like in the quest for the most normal or most average person you actually can't find them because it's an it's a myth it's like you can't it they created a big you know to do a big song and dance to to about normalcy and middleness and how it's you know the the ideal is the average but then they actually still can't find the ideal and I always sort of find that to be also this kind of moment of resistance in in the ways that our bodies just work and are you know that it's like we're we can't we kind of won't be contained in that kind of way but it's sort of like your chickens where there's like a a kind of big Con- contest, you know yeah. the- <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we've talked on um on previous episodes the weirdest thing about the better baby competitions that it's
1: very similar to we're that. so yeah. popular yeah.
0: yeah and just like it's so in hindsight it feels so sinister to think of people like lining up to have their babies like head ratios measured and have like a blue ribbon pinned to them for having the most like well-bred plum baby um but at the time it was just that was just good old American fun which is yeah and I mean I think what's
1: interesting about those is part of what was going on is that these kind of cerebral I mean coastal elite type (laughs) eugenicists (laughs) that were like trying to figure out a way to get farmers essentially and people Mm. who knew a lot about farming in to be interested and kind of excited about eugenics and they were like well those types of people actually understand breeding and the way that we're gonna like get them in on it is by essentially treating their babies like you know prize pigs at the at the fair which is really it's really dark and it's also like yeah um and you also see how like how that it didn't work exactly but like that there was something like they were hitting on by thinking of it that way
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost, like, massively, like, I'm putting a positive spin on this, but it's nice to see that, like, something, I mean, a couple weeks ago, there was the story about, like, the couple who's trying to, you know, they're they're big nerds or whatever, but they're trying to make the best babies and they're breeding and stuff, but, like, so many people were like, that is so f***ed up. Yeah. Like, it's almost nice to know that, like, back then it was, like, that was the norm, but now we're, like, at the place where the norm is, like, you can be whoever you want and it's f***ed up that we're trying to like breed people to be a superhuman or like whatever. Like, I don't know. That's kind of like hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think also like the ideal has really, in an interesting way, the ideal has really changed. I mean, in the in the right. mid-century, I think the idea of the being normal, of being average, of being kind of um, middle in that right. way was very appealing. And that's not what we, I don't think that is what is valued in the same way now right so that's definitely true and I also think like interestingly I think anything that has like eugenics vibes even in science is so it's like such a third rail that it it right most scientists won't even come close to touching it or dealing with it and I mean I think that's probably I mean it's complicated I'm sure that they mean some science doesn't get done that maybe could be useful but I think it's it's good that so many scientists are aware of the history of science in that way
2: right
0: right I'm just yeah I'm I'm really um I'm still really mad about the sizing thing and being like yeah taking the measurements and then being like I don't like those measurements I don't we're gonna throw that data. this is what I mean is it's so
1: (laughs) weird because I mean, it's not weird because people were horribly people were and are horribly racist and do things like this. But I, right. I talked to the archivist who's kind of in charge of the the archive of this woman. Um, and we were just like, what? Like, I was like, what did she say in the paper? Like, wh- you know, what is even the justification here? And she's like, There's, it's just like <laughs> it's just like straight, straight up old fashioned like racism. But it doesn't. The thing is, that's weird about sizing is that. People don't design clothes even then it wasn't like there were white clothes and there were jewish clothes and there were italian clothes or something it's like it's really not in the interest of capitalism to to throw out that data either which is it's always kind of interesting when like american capitalism and american racism are kind of at (laughs) like it's not very often but sometimes they are kind of at loggerheads and you're like oh i guess racism Trump's capitalism in this in this situation you know what I mean
0: yeah no it just like
1: just doesn't actually make any sense to throw out that data if what you're trying to do is create sizing that's going to fit the most number of people who buy them buy clothes right but then the sizing system didn't really work that well anyway although that data was the basis for kind of attempts as uh, as time went on although it's it fell away pretty quickly because it's it's just so hard to make standardized sizing and so there just isn't really any right yeah
0: I feel like the um you know a few years ago I definitely rolled my eyes at the early attempts for like 3d scanning for making custom clothes and then as some companies started to get decent at it I was like no actually like I think this is probably the best we can do like made on demand but without the need for a human pattern designer to make every single item and like actually need to fit a person's body because like we've had a lot of years for somebody to figure out a different way. <laughs> no. Right. I mean the
1: the other way like well just if you really want to get into it there's two other ways that it could work. One is the really old-fashioned way like chicken times way like <laughs> where you're like basically like put a sack on your body right. and yeah, a yeah. belt which I'm like pretty pro sack plus belt or totally. like breeches plus (laughs) tunic you know like that feels like you know that'll last you a lifetime the sack and the belt (laughs) but the other thing is like you just only have two pairs of clothes and you make them or somebody makes them for you and they're pretty expensive and then that's that's it that's the other way that it can work besides the 3d printing way which will also be pretty expensive and possibly weird although maybe not I don't know I'm always a little skeptical of like the like I'm not a futurist in that way so I kind of maybe I'm too skeptical for my own good but I always feel like it's just gonna be like a body stocking you know maybe like Star Star Trek style which I, I guess I'm pro the Star Trek uniform as the future too I
0: just, yeah you can you need two options you need the completely open-ended tunic and the Star Trek body sock and as long as we have both available we're fine yeah you just that th- yeah. every day is is a star trek body sock day but <laughs> That's right. That's
2: right. i would argue most days <laughs> yeah. are not a star yeah, trek me, body I'm, sock i'm definitely day. more of a belted
0: tunic kind of gal <laughs> um
2: <laughs> yeah
0: so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week um mm-hmm. every time i do this now i think i should just throw away this aspect of the show because everyone is like, everyone's it's, like always competitive so fun, or something <laughs> yeah
2: everyone is just weird i don't maybe know maybe this is
0: me officially saying that now every everyone ties every time because i yeah. grew weary of of this uh maybe this the trick is to tie
1: them all together
2: <laughs> mm. i mean we kind of already I know have, it's like true. happenstance did right <laughs> yeah it's true we really synthesized
0: uh the facts this week so yeah th- there we go it's done. Um, Heather, remind our listeners, uh, what your book is called and where they can find you.
1: Uh, okay. My book is called butts, a backstory and it's available everywhere you buy books and I'm not on Twitter, although maybe I should be, but I am on Instagram. I think I'm rad H Radkey on Instagram and yeah. And I, you know, thanks so much for having me and it's so fun to hear your all's facts.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Yeah, I can't wait
2: to read your book about butts. <laughs> I recommend.
0: <already laughs> it's great. It's a real romp. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.